Start a new series this morning. We're going to take a pause on the book of John. We're going to go through a series we're calling DNA. And so over the next eight weeks, we are going to look at what are going to be the building blocks for the future of our church. DNA is an interesting thing. Every time a baby is born, everybody's excited, right? Everybody's like, oh, the baby. So everybody's so excited about the baby. Everybody loves babies. And, but one of the things that inevitably happen after the initial excitement of the baby is that everyone begins to say, oh, my gosh, he's got her daddy's eyes. And her dad, oh, she just is, looks her daddy made over. And then the wife is over there going, oh, my God. Do I not get anything? Or, or it's vice versa, right? And so everybody's the one to say, oh, she's got her mama's ears, her mama's toes. It's like, how are toes really that different that, that they could be your mama's toes? I don't know, but maybe they are. And so everybody does it. And so when, when I was a baby, um, my grandparents on my dad's side um, kept saying to, about me, oh, he is just Wilson made over. And my mom was not a fan of that idea. And so, plotting as she did, she went and she put a baby picture of herself on the refrigerator. And so the next time my grandparents came over, they saw it and went, oh my gosh, when did you take this picture of Brent? He looks so good. He's just Wilson made over. And then with a smile of victory, she said, oh, actually, that's me. (laughs) That is a true story. You see, DNA determines most everything about us. It determines the color of our eyes. It determines how tall or short we will be. It determines the color of your hair and if it will be curly or straight or wavy. It determines what our future selves will look like. And that is also true for our church. The DNA that we build into our church today will determine what our church becomes and looks like in 50 years. It's interesting. Our church this year is 49 years old. Next year we will celebrate the 50th birthday of our church. And in the 49 years that our church has existed, it has been blessed by God in, I think, so many incredible ways. Uh, Our church has had uh, some long-tenured pastors, which is, uh, which is unusual. I think the average tenured pastor is like four years. And so we've had pastors for a long time who have blessed our church and served our church well, Pastor Gary and Pastor Ron in particular. Gary's not even in here for me to talk good about him. I mean, can you believe that? And so our church has led our convention and baptisms for many years. Uh, our church has been an incredible light to the community um, and our church from starting 49 years ago in the little ballet studio right down, what's that road? That Foster Road over there. Uh, and then getting to build this building and then moving to this building in 49 years is a pretty impressive feat. And so my goal is to build on that legacy, to build on top of that foundation that has already been laid so that our church continues to grow, continues to thrive And so that it would grow healthier and healthier and healthier, so much so that when our church turns 100 years old, we would look at her and say, my, how you've grown. Look at you now. I never thought you'd come this far. You're so big. And that we would look at her and be proud. We have a great legacy 
But if we're going to continue that legacy, to build on that legacy, we have to have the right DNA now to produce that kind of church that doesn't just survive for 50 more years, but thrives for 50 more years. We've got to have that type of DNA so when we turn 100 years old, we'll continue to thrive. So over the next eight weeks, we're going to be preaching this DNA series, uh, unveiling the vision, uh, the DNA for the future. Next week, we'll reveal the mission statement. Uh, We have some core values and things that we're going to build into the foundation of who we are that I believe will propel us forward. Uh, I'm excited to finally be able to share this. We've had two teams working on uh, different aspects of this for uh, over six months now. One of those was an official ad hoc committee that we put together, and I get to really share what they worked on this morning in particular. And so real quick, I just want to say a big thank you to Patty Hale, Bretta Spruill, Scott Williams, and Laura Davis uh, for their help on that. Uh, there was We met almost every other week for like six months, and so it was a lot of work, and so I really appreciate you guys. And so today we're going to really talk about what they came up with and what they looked at, and then over the next few weeks we'll talk about our mission statement, core values, and things like that for the future. But this morning is all about leadership, because all good DNA, all good change begins with leadership, particularly about how our leadership can reflect the model laid out for us in the Bible, particularly in the New Testament. See, if we're going to be a church that doesn't just survive but thrives, uh, if we're going to be a church that turns 100 years old and keeps going, we need to have clear, solid, biblical leadership. Our church constitution has a fascinating phrase when it talks about the pastor's job. It says this, the first line, it is the pastor's responsibility for leading the church and functioning as a New Testament church. It's interesting. It says a New Testament church, not a 21st century church, not a trendy church, not a church based on whatever growth model we think works best, but a church modeled after the Bible, after the New Testament, particularly after the book of Acts. I love that. Whoever added that to the Constitution, I think it was great because that's exactly what our church needs to be. A church committed to the supremacy of this book and modeling ourselves after what we find in this book. So the question we got to answer this morning is what does leadership look like in the New Testament? What does leadership look like in the Bible? 1 Timothy 3 is the classic passage that you would turn to if you were going to look at the qualifications for the two offices in our church. The two offices you are familiar with, they are the office of deacon and the office of pastor. And in 1 Timothy 3.1, we read this. It'll be on the screen. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. It goes on to say, therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. It has a whole list of things that you have to be. But here's what's interesting. If this is a passage telling us the qualifications for a pastor, if it is the passage that virtually every church looks to to say, okay, this is what a pastor must look like, then why does it say the word overseer? Here's why. There are three New Testament words or three different words that are used interchangeably to describe the office of pastor. 
They're this. Pastor, overseer, and elder. Or overseer, pastor, and elder. All three of these terms are used in the Bible to describe the same office, to describe, to to refer to the pastoral office as we talk about it. They're used interchangeably, and yet all three of these kind of speak to a different aspect of what the role is. You have overseer, which in the Greek is episkopos, which speaks to the pastor's need to lead the church. You have elder, which is presbyteros, which speaks to the wisdom and maturity needed to fill the office. And you have pastor or poimian, which speaks to the shepherding aspect of the role. But here's what's interesting. Of these three New Testament words that are used interchangeably to describe this office, do you know which one is used least often? Pastor. In fact, the word pastor is used in the New Testament one time. And yet we find that uh, overseer is used the second most and elder is used most often. And yet they're used interchangeably. Sometimes even in the same sentence, uh, someone will say pastor and then overseer in the, next, in, in the same exact sentence, referring to the same office. So whether, all that to say, whether we say overseer or pastor or elder, we're referring to the same thing. An elder of a church is not simply an older person. An elder is a pastor. A pastor is an elder. Why am I telling you this? Because virtually every mention of this office, virtually every use of the word elder is plural. Let me give you a couple examples. Acts 14, 23, look down the screen. And when they had appointed elders for them, what did it just say? When they had appointed elders, plural. And every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they have believed. Notice this next one, 1 Timothy 5, 17. Let the elders plural, who rule well, be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. And then notice Titus 1.5. This is why I left you in Crete. This is Paul speaking to Titus. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders, plural, in every town as I directed you. There was one church in every town, and so he was supposed to go to every church and appoint elders, plural, raise up elders in all these churches. The normal practice of the New Testament church was not to have one singular pastor or one singular elder and a lot of deacons. It wasn't one guy and then a bunch of deacons. It was to have a group of deacons and a group of elders or a group of pastors. The New Testament model is a plurality of elders. That is, multiple elders, This was the model the early church used. It's the model Baptists have historically used. Southern Baptists have historically used. It's the model that Southern Baptists are returning to. And it is the model that will help serve and bless our church for years to come. Now, let me be clear about something. For a church to have a plurality of elders does not mean that we have got to go hire a bunch of people. In the same way that God calls and raises up godly deacons within our church, so we would believe that God would raise up elders within our church, lay men, non-paid, non-staffed elders that are wise and godly men who, who know the Bible, who can teach the Bible, who are above reproach and could serve our church in this way. There are men in our church who maybe at one point in their life felt a, a call to ministry, a call to be a pastor, but for whatever reason never was able to step into that or follow that. 
This is a way for them to keep their job and to yet follow the calling of God on their life. So I want to show you a little bit of what a plurality of elders does and why we should have them. One, a plurality of elders is biblical, which really should be all the reason we need, but a plurality of elders is biblical. A few passages. Acts 6 says, uh, and this is, the, this is the passage that uh, uh, we get deacons from. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. So in the life of the early church, this is a formative moment. This is a moment where they're still trying to figure out how church is done, what, what church looks like. And so they raise up deacons to serve the church, to serve these administrative functions and needs. And so the office of deacon is created. Deacons are the chief servants of the church. They care of the physical needs of the church so that the elders or pastors can focus on the spiritual needs, on teaching, on preaching. You could say it this way. Deacons focus on physical warfare, while elders focus on spiritual warfare. Or you might say, deacons serve physical needs, while elders serve spiritual needs. One of the reasons you see churches have only one elder nowadays, being the senior pastor, is because what churches have done is have they've made deacons these kind of quasi-part-time elders. So deacons have filled the role of being both half deacon and half elder, which has led to much confusion and dysfunction in churches. Look at 1 Peter 5 with me. It'll be on the screen. He says, so I exhort the elders, plural, among you as a fellow elder and as a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker and the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. So notice first that Peter is addressing this church, and he's, he, he addresses the elders, plural, because there's more than one. And three things I want you to notice about uh, what an elder does. One, shepherd the flock. The word shepherd is actually the verb form of the word pastor, it is the same root word. And so Peter is telling them that you are to pastor the flock, shepherd the flock, lead the flock. It is the idea of a, of a shepherd caring for his sheep, leading his sheep, like you would think about in Psalm 23. He is leading them by the still waters. He's leading them to green pastures. A shepherd's job is to give his life, to serve, to care, to lead, and to teach his sheep. And so he's to be a shepherd too. He's to exercise oversight. He's to lead. So the elders shepherd, but they also exercise, as Peter says, exercising oversight simply means to lead, to take inventory, to say, here's where we are, here's where we need to go, here's how we reach more people, here's how we teach more people, here's how we care for these people, here's what we need to do. And three, he says, to be an example. Elders shepherd, elders exercise oversight, and elders are to be an example. In many ways, an elder should strive to be a model of what it looks like to follow Jesus. Like Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. An elder should have the type of character and lifestyle that we could say to a new Christian, 
do whatever that guy does. That's what a Christian looks like. Now let's look at Hebrews 13, 17. It'll be on the screen. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. The elders of a church are tasked with keeping watch over your souls and will one day stand before God and give an account for how they watched over your souls. This is a sobering and weighty task. This means preaching the truth, leading in the truth. It means caring. It means discipling, doing whatever is needed to keep watch and care over your soul. Mark Dever says it like this. He says, Think of how careful a bride's attendants are as they prepare her to walk down the aisle. Christ wants his leaders no less careful as they prepare his bride. Think about this. It is the job of the elders to see that everyone in the church is shepherded, that everyone is led, that everyone's soul is watched over, that everyone has an example to look to, that everyone is prayed for, every individual is prayed for, that every individual is taught, every individual is discipled, is loved, is served, is prepared as a bride adored for her husband. That is a task of elders. This is not a new office for our church. Understand that. This is not a new thing. Our church holds the office of elder, but our church only has one elder. And I think the New Testament model of having multiple elders is because such a daunting task should not be attempted alone. That there is too much at stake. There are too many souls to watch over. For one man to bear the burden alone. This is why we need a plurality of elders because their task of watching over the souls of everyone in the church should not be taken lightly. It should not be a program we funnel people through. But if we have a group of men who could collectively watch over your souls and care for you, think about how it would bless us. A plurality of elders is biblical. It's a New Testament model, and that alone should spur us to do it. And I know, listen, guys, this is a more teaching morning than it is a preaching morning. So, and and I, I get that this is a probably a new concept for a lot of you. I get that most of you have never thought about this, or you've never seen a church like this. Most of you didn't grow up in a model like this, and I get that change of any sort is hard. But what I want to implore upon you this morning is to look aside change, look aside difference. And let's look at the scriptures together and submit to them alone. Because a plurality of elders is the New Testament model. It is incredibly, overwhelmingly biblical. But second, a plurality of elders is historical. Not only is it biblical, it's historical. It's interesting, prior to the 1900s, so prior to just over 100 years ago, it was common, it was most common for all Baptist churches uh, to have a plurality of elders. When I was a youth pastor, I went back through a lot of the old minutes uh, in our business meetings at our church and found where they referred to elders and when they first began. And that church was old, 150 years old. Even Southern Baptist churches commonly had elders. I was reading the other day, the first president of the Southern Baptist Convention uh, was challenging churches. His name was W.B. Johnson, and he said this, Christ strictly required 
each church to have a plural eldership. The reason most churches went away from this in the early 1900s was because uh, in the early 1900s was the rise of the corporation and the rise of the CEO. And churches began to model how we did church after how businesses were ran. And since you had one CEO at the helm, we thought, okay, we got to have one pastor at the helm. And so churches began to pragmatically model themselves after business and not the New Testament. So they went away from this plural model to a singular pastor model, and what happened but the deacons filled the void. The deacons became both a deacon and a half-elder. So over the past 80 years, the deacon idea has morphed, and it's caused confusion and problems in modern-day churches. This all began to change in 1979. In 1979, uh, there was a movement called the Conservative Resurgence. And uh, the reason we had to have this movement was because uh, the Southern Baptist Convention, and particularly our seminaries, had grown liberal. By that I mean they didn't think the Bible was the Bible. They thought the resurrection of Jesus was just an allegory. They thought uh, that, the, that Jonah wasn't true, that the Bible, the miracles didn't happen. And so in 1979, there was a conservative resurgence to begin to believe in the Bible again, to begin to look to the Bible and the scriptures and submit to them as they stand again. And so our convention has changed, and one of the byproducts of that has been a return to the Bible, a return to submitting to the Bible. And so over the past 30 years, Southern Baptists have been reclaiming its biblical and historical roots by returning to a plurality of elder model. And so not only is it biblical, it's historical. It's it's Baptist at its core, for those of you who care about being Baptist. The logo really should be on the other side. I don't know why. Everybody who makes mugs thinks we're all left-handed. So it is biblical, it's historical, but it's also practical. A plurality of elders is just practical. Let me give you a couple reasons. One, to have a plurality of elders means we have homegrown leadership. Remember, we're not talking about hiring people from the outside, per se. We're talking about raising up but lay men to this office. When a church, think about this. When a church begins to recognize men called by God to be elders, all of a sudden you have men who have been here for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, who know this community, who know you, which gives me a huge learning curve of what would have taken me 10, 15 years to understand this place. I get their immediate wisdom. Which, two, there's more wisdom. When there's one guy trying to steer the ship, you run into landmines and just blow up all over the place. Because one man's vision is incredibly limited, no matter how wise he may be. Amen? So when you begin to surround yourself with a group of elders who have more wisdom, it helps you navigate church life, helps you handle different situations that come up. When crisis happens, it's too late to like try to put a team together to handle something. Instead, you already have a group of people who are ready to handle it. It's not on the shoulder of one man's wisdom, but collective. It balances weakness. Now, I don't know if y'all know this or not, but I've got like one or two weaknesses. I got an amen on that. When there are a collective men together... My weaknesses will be their strengths, and their strengths will be my weaknesses. 
And so collectively, our weaknesses will get made up for. And so my weaknesses are no longer a hindrance to the church. And they are that. No matter what guy you put up here, he's going to have a weakness, maybe two, maybe three. And they will hinder the church in those areas. But when you have a plurality of elders, those weaknesses are made up for. For it lightens the workload. More elders means there's more people to get more done. One man has so much bandwidth. He can only do so much. And he'll focus on areas and then neglect other areas. Things will fall through the cracks. People will fall through the cracks. And pastors get burnt out. But when he has a group of elders to lean on and who will call him out and say, hey, you're doing too much. You need to stop. Let us pick up the load. He won't get burnt out. Five, it creates accountability. A plurality of elders means there are a group of men who know everything that's going on in my life, who's going on in the church life, and hold me accountable and hold each other accountable. So you don't have just one man doing whatever the heck he wants to do, but a group of men. It creates congregational support for decisions. I don't know if y'all know this or not, but I got a lot of crazy ideas. Some of those ideas are really good. Some of those ideas are less good. And when there are, when it is a decision that isn't just, oh, this is what Brent wants to do, but this is what our elders want to do, it comes with more weight. And there will be decisions that I want to do, they go, Brent, that's not a great idea. One of the, one of the huge blessings is this idea of mutual submission. That I would have a group of men that I could look to and I say, hey, we should do this. And they go, maybe we should think about that a little bit. And I could trust them enough to say, maybe you're right. Maybe I spoke too quick. And so it is easier for the church to trust where we're going. Seven, it steadies the ship when the pastor leaves. Now, whether I'm here five years, 10 years, 30 years, or die here, there'll be a time when I'm gone. And so in my absence, what does the church do? When Ron left, there was a little chaos. There was a little rushing to figure out what we had to do. When you have a plurality of elders, the men who have been teaching us and leading us for years will continue to do so in the transition. And so it creates stability. And one of the hardest times of a church's life, it creates stability. Having a plurality of elders is biblical, it's historical, it's historically Baptist, it's practical. And guys, I believe, I know this is a different kind of sermon this morning, but I believe with all my heart that a plurality plurality of elders would help our church not merely survive but thrive i believe it would make our church stronger it would make our church more unified than ever i believe god would raise up faithful men to be elders who would love you well who would serve you well who would teach you the truth well who would watch over your souls well next year our church turns 50 years old and god has blessed this church there's no doubt about it And we now stand on the shoulders of those who've come before us. And we are able to stand here today in this building because of their faithful work. Because they've laid a foundation. And it is our responsibility to take us another 50 years and beyond. And I believe having a plurality of elders make us healthier and stronger, that we would make it to 100 thriving. When we turn 100 years old, I want to be able to look and say, oh my, how proud we are of you. Oh my, look how you've grown. 
And I think a plurality of elders is one step in helping us accomplish that. Let me close with this quote from Mark Dever, a pastor in D.C. He said, as a senior pastor, probably the single most helpful thing to my pastoral ministry has been the recognition of the other elders. They round out my gifts, make up for some of my deficiencies, supplement my judgment, and create support in the congregation for decision. The health and potential health of a church begins and ends, lives and dies with its leadership. So let's model our leadership on the Bible. Let's let God raise up elders among us so that we may thrive for 50 years. Let's not build it on one man. Let's build it on a team of men. A plurality of men who would shepherd us all well. Let's pray. Father, we're here this morning, and this is a different type of morning. A morning of adjustment, a morning of looking at the scriptures and trying to align ourselves with what they say. And while there's still a lot of questions to be answered and a lot of things to think through and to understand, Lord, I believe with all my heart that this is the direction you would have us to go. For the record, this doesn't mean my role changes, but that there is an incredible amount of support. So God, first we pray that you would confirm in every heart and mind here that this is indeed what you would have us to do, to align ourselves with the New Testament model and be that kind of church that has a plural leadership. I could give some authority away. Father, if if you would confirm that in our hearts and minds, God, would you then prepare and raise up biblical elders to lead us and serve us and watch over our souls, to care for the flock. How would you do that for us this morning? Church, we're gonna respond a little differently this morning. I wanna challenge you, if you are committed to our church, if you are a part of our church, if you believe in our church, I want to ask you all here in just a minute when we stand up to come forward to gather up around here, to maybe to, to hold hands, to, put your, to lay hands on each other, to hug, and to let's together collectively pray for the future of our church. Pray that God would help us to arrive at 100 years old, stronger than we are today, healthier than we are today, have reached more people than we have in the past 50 years to be a brighter light of the community than we were in the first 50 years. Help pray that God would help us to build on the foundation laid by those who came before us, that they would look at us and say, my, we never believed the church could be what it is, but we are so thankful that God has in his grace provided. Church, would you come and pray for our church? That it would be blessed by God, used by God, to make much of his son, to see many people come to know him, to change our community, to change the world with the gospel. So church, as we stand now, would you, if you're committed, believe in our church, would you come up here, gather together with us up here, and let's pray together for our church now.